The whole world has changed and the church is asleep. This is Mission Shift, a podcast that shares ideas about reaching out to the immigrant cultures in America today. When most people think of missions, they immediately think of somewhere overseas, yet missions today could mean the neighbor next door. Our conversation today is with Gwalin Wells, a historian, pastor, and communicator who has spent most of his life teaching people how the gospel can impact all people and cultures. Thanks for joining us today. As many Americans have been seeing throughout the last, oh, I'd say year or so, we've been seeing a lot of things change politically around the world. We saw the Brexit in the the UK. We see the rise of the right in Europe. There's just a lot of tension everywhere, and especially about the immigration issue in all these countries. Whether they secure their borders or not, there's an immigration problem. Is there a common theme in all of this? Well, there are times of great change. And these times of great change seem to be coming faster and faster, waves of change of culture. But let's look at some of the things that have been happening in just the last couple of years. We just had an election in the United States, and against all odds, from what anybody thought uh, six months before, we have a president that was elected, and one of the main things he spoke about were immigrants and controlling the borders and American jobs and, and so on. Brexit happened. Who would have thought 10 years ago, and the high watermark of the excitement about the European Union, that the United Kingdom would wholeheartedly vote to pull out and vote with a 2% margin, which is a pretty narrow thing. And I imagine if they took a vote today, now that they realize what they did, it might come back the other way around. If we take a look at the rise of the right in Holland, the rise of the right in Scandinavia, the rise of the right in Austria, the rise of the right in France. If we see South Africa, we're seeing anti-immigrant riots in Cape Town and the animosity towards immigrants that have come from more Central African areas and East African areas. And there are many, many immigrants in South Africa, and that's difficult. When we take a look at, at Mexico and we see the, the way that the people from Central America are treated and the animosity and the discrimination and anger aimed at the Guatemalans and the Hondurans and so forth. It's a very interesting time. Bottom line, we're in the midst of the greatest human migration in history. There have always been waves of migration, whether it's in Southeast Asia. Look at the people that came across the the UK. It was the Celts, the Celtic people, spoke a a language like Irish that uh, ruled England until the Angles and the Saxons showed up. Well, the Celts weren't there right after the Ice Age. You know, the Celts came in someplace be about 700 BC, maybe. And then the, the Angles and the Saxons came in, and behind the Angles and the Saxons came Danes and came Vikings and came the Normans. And the Normans came in. They were French-speaking grandchildren of the Vikings. And they came in, and uh, all the people were pushed further and further west, all the earlier groups. You look at Wales or you look at Galway in Ireland, the DNA there, which is the last place you could push anybody, the DNA there is incredibly rich. It's some of the most varied DNA on the planet because wave after wave of people were pushed further and further west. The idea of migrations is certainly something that's as old as humankind. And of 
course, the Angles and Saxons were Germanic, and they were pushed by the Slavs, and the Slavs were pushed by the Huns, and so forth and so on. So migrations, the grass is always greener on the other side of your neighbor's property. So if you go back in time, it's always been part of migration. Sometimes it's due to conquering and one nation over another. But is there a trend in these last days for people to see no borders at all, to be a one people, a one mind, a one nation? Is that really kind of behind some of this migration or the whole idea of borders or no borders? I mean, with spiritual eyes now, read it to me. Well, the book of Acts, Paul in his To an Unknown God speech says that God determines the the boundaries and the places of habitation of the peoples of the world. Hidden someplace in the midst of all this, God's will is working itself out. We're getting glimmers of that as to what God is up to. But the bottom line is people can only take change so fast. Cultures can only be stretched so fast. Anybody that grew up in a small town knew that the small town rival next door were so different, so very, they were all cousins, but the other town was so different. I lived in a small town in southern Minnesota. Their great rival was six miles up the road. The town we lived in, their school colors were orange and black. The other town, six miles up the road, were the exact opposite, purple and white. And the kids of either town could probably tell you for, for hours how they were different from those kids in the other town. Like siblings, they defined each other. And again, a lot of them were cousins. And if they were to find each other in Europe or in the service or something, they'd be like two peas in a pod. But they were great rivals. They just hated each other in football. And so siblings, you know, they talk the same, they look the same, they have the same ways they move. But if you were to talk to the siblings themselves, they could spend hours telling you how they were different from their siblings because they defined themselves. Their greatest point of identity and that's a word we're going to talk about more. Identity was the fact of how they were different from those who were closest to them. But isn't identity somewhat being lost today? Because I live in part of the city. Oh, you bet. Where we had all European ethnic settlers. Now, of course, 50 years later or more, there is no more identity that way. There was the Poles and the Slavs and the Italians, but now it's a melting pot of all kinds of South American... Immigrants and so forth. It is and it isn't. People have to have identity and they have to be able to differentiate themselves. They have to know who they are. When you go through a loss, you go through a divorce, the death of a child, you move, you get a new job, you're going to go through depression because you have to figure out who you are again. And so it's a very normal thing. All college kids kind of go into a tailspin in their freshman year. And whether they realize it or not, it's it's a form of depression. They have to refigure out who they are. They don't sleep and, and then so forth. We could talk about that for a long time. But the more, as we have this huge global world with video, with YouTube, with the net, with all the things, all this huge commonality of experience, really television. Back in the 50s, the sociologists said, well, with the coming of television, regional accents will disappear. Now, the strange thing is in 50 years, regional accents didn't disappear. They became stronger because people need to have an identity. Those regional accents became stronger because we have to know who we are. And we're like this, but we're not like that. Think of the cliques in senior high. That's all about the human mind developing identity. The faster this change comes, a culture can only take stretching so far, and then it has to contract. 
And there are books written about this going through American history and so forth. But let's just look after the chaos and the pain and the entrance into the world stage in World War One. This opened up all kinds of new ideas and crazy things and jazz and uh, adopting the music of black people and so forth. And so we had the Roaring Twenties. And it was a time of cognitive dissonance because one hand we said we wanted to have prohibition, but on the other hand, booze was exploding and speakeasies and so forth. And morals changed, contraception became available, and a lot of things happened. Women's skirts became higher, and it was a time of great change. But then when the Depression hit, it was a time of a lot of turning inward. It was a time of great revivals. More money was given to church colleges in the 1930s than at any time in the 20th century. It was a time of saying this is important, and and it was a time of kind of a turning inward. But it was a hard time as well, and it stressed families. And then we came into World War II, and of course, that was a tremendously difficult time. If you take a look at the American story up until about 1941, through the late 30s, early 40s, as Japan and Germany were becoming stronger and stronger, there were voices like Lindbergh and others, very strong voices, who were very isolationist. And they said, we don't want to get into another European war. We don't want to kill off our young men. We don't want to do that. We want them to be in the term America first. That was the big theme at that point. And it's interesting that that has arisen again. But that was the central theme of the isolationists until December 7th, 1941. The example you've given through this history course is that whole idea of cultures can stretch only so far and then they retreat. Culture was stretched all kinds of ways. Women went into the workforce, Rosie the Riveter. Men were going all over the world and learning all kinds of things. Americans were in the Pacific. Americans were all over Europe. They were in North Africa. And they were even aware, though, of the difference of culture, and they began to learn difference of culture. As we began in our congregation to talk about culture, started reading Patty Lane's book together in our adult Sunday school. And I think people were a little skeptical. And one of our senior citizens who had gone into World War II in the Army Air Corps and went from North Africa to Sicily to Sardinia to the south of France, stood up and he said, you know, this makes sense to me. He said, you know, when we got to North Africa, they gave us mimeograph sheets and it said, these are the customs and you should do this and you shouldn't do this and you should be aware of this and what a handshake means and, and so forth. And then when we got to Sicily, they gave us sheets again and it was all different. And then we got to Sardinia, we got south of France, and each time we learned something new. And that was about culture, wasn't it? And all of a sudden, in an instant, the whole acceptance of the congregation changed because it was validated by this 90-year-old guy. And so as the Americans were spread out all over the world and learned all these things, a lot of things were changing and a lot of attitudes were changing at home. And after having gone through the hard times of the Depression and millions of people killed and all of the difficulties of World War II, they came home and what did they do? They came home and they needed to figure out who they were again. And so they wore conservative suits. They built a lot of colonial houses. They watched the brand new television set, which the television in the late 50s, mid 50s, the late 50s, probably half the television shows were Westerns. And the Westerns talked about the American myth. The American myth, well, we're the good guys. We wear the white hats. We don't start fights. But by gum, if you start a fight, we'll end it. And I think that the Westerns were all about trying to give the vets a philosophical handle to understand 
what they had just been through. Moms quit the workforce and came home. They wore dresses, and they tried to reestablish a culture, and that culture of father knows best, leave it to beaver. There were no black people in the United States in the 1950s. There were no Indian people. There were no Latino people. They were invisible. It was a generic Protestantism of white people that lived in two-story colonial houses. And that was reestablishing the identity, reestablishing the myth. But that didn't quite fit. Women really kind of liked being Rosie the Riveter. And the pressures came up. And then there were changes. There were the invention of the dishwasher and the automatic washer and dryer. And as we get into the early 60s, we get the invention of the pill. We see families getting smaller overnight. We see a, a huge change. And a woman lib and women saying we want to be equal, we want to be able to do the same things men are doing. That was a time of the opposite time. In the 50s, we were pulling in and we were turning inward to figure out our identity. And then in the 60s, we went through this time again of pulling away and trying to figure out who we were because it didn't fit the 1950s. We had a lot of other ideas. And then came the the promise of the Kennedy era and then the assassinations and Vietnam and getting bogged down in Vietnam. And they could only take so much. And so Nixon is elected, interestingly. And Nixon is a moderately conservative candidate. But the country isn't ready yet to get its identity together. And we go into more chaos. We go into Watergate. We are still stuck in Vietnam. We go through the other assassinations. We go through the pain of the tremendous inflation and endless. Jimmy Carter talked about a great uneasiness in the country. And that was very true. And inflation was at 20%. And it was a time where we, all of a sudden, we were just exhausted by change. Well, then who stood up? The great communicator, Ronald Reagan. We are a city set on a hill. And he hit all the points of the American identity again. Now, it wasn't the same American identity in the 50s, although we went back to narrow suits. We went back to gray flannel suits and conservative-looking cars, conservative politics. And unlike the 50s, where there was a great revival, really, as the Christian church got involved in politics in the late 70s, it kind of killed the charismatic revival and the energy of the church, of the evangelical church, so much of it went into politics. Well, maybe we made some missteps. Maybe we lusted after the, the cucumbers of power too much. I don't know. But anyway, so then after the, the Reagan years, and then we got into this endless war again, and now after many years of war and change in the immigration, because our birth rate is so low, we have to have immigrants. Now let's kind of take a sidebar here on immigration. Since the coming of the pill, and with the economic desires of our families today, They want to have a boat. They want to have a dishwasher. They want to have a microwave oven. They want to have nice vacations. You know, we were at, what, 2.3 children? Typical family in the 50s. Most of the families that I grew up around had a minimum of three or four kids, and we had families in our neighborhood with 8, 10, 12, and that wasn't seen as anything out of the ordinary. Now, after we get into the 1970s, that just didn't happen. We just didn't see families that size. So our birth rate dropped off precipitously. Plus, the people having babies in the 70s, 60s and 70s, were the smaller generation born during the Depression. And those are the parents, and that was the the beginning of Gen X. Gen X is a small generation because of that. When Gen X hit the workforce in the late 80s, it was right at the peak of the World War II generation retirement. That was a big generation. They were the baby boom after World War I. And all of a sudden, we were extremely short of labor. And what happened then, starting in the late 80s, was this tremendous flux of immigrants 
into the United States because we couldn't function without them. Whole industries couldn't function without them. Landscaping, gardening, agriculture, the hotel, restaurant, and on and on and on and on. We didn't have a source of cheap labor, and we needed to have people, and we didn't have people. Now, the same thing has been true in Europe the last 30 years. The birth rate now across most of Europe is just barely keeping up with the death rate. People are having 2.1 children or along those lines. Or Spain, it's one point something. Spain is a very interesting bellwether. Spain became the, the place where rich Britons wanted to retire. And so rich people from England, UK, would go down to Spain and they didn't have to pay any income tax. And so real estate became extremely, extremely expensive. So houses became out of the reach of young people. They could not get married. They could not start a family. Most young people in Spain don't get married until they're about 30. Well, because they have such a shortage of people that are willing to do cheap labor, that has created just a tremendous vacuum. About five years ago, we took a vacation to the south of uh, south of Spain, and we're in a cafe in Seville, Sevilla. And the table next to me, I'm listening to a couple talking with each other. They weren't speaking Spanish, and they weren't speaking Italian. They were speaking something that I didn't recognize. And I said, perdoname, uh, que lenguas? Uh, what language are you guys speaking? And they said, oh, Catalan. That's the language up in Barcelona. It's a different from Spanish. It's kind of halfway in between Spanish and Italian. And so we began to talk. And the couple, the, the woman of the couple, was a second grade teacher. Well, my wife is a second grade teacher. And so we began to talk about the differences. And I translated for about the next three hours back and forth between these two second grade teachers. And my wife is a second grade teacher in the core city of St. Paul, the east side of St. Paul. And this woman was a second grade teacher in Barcelona. And guess what? Their classrooms were almost entirely, for both of them, made up of immigrants. Now, the Barcelona classrooms were made up of North Africans, made up of sub-Saharan Africans. This tremendous influx of people that are running the hotels, running the resorts, running the golf courses, running everything in the south of Spain. Tremendous influx all the way up and down the coast and into the central areas of Spain because the Spanish are just not having children. And according to most projections, several of the European countries, Spain, France, will be Muslim majorities by sometime later in this century. Think what that means. So what, what we're at is at a time of great change. It, we can understand it because of all sorts of things. The pill, abortion, families wanting to have fewer children, more prosperity, women wanting to work outside the home and have careers and be fulfilled. Those are wonderful things in many ways. Abortion isn't. But at the same time, they have created a great need for people. Now, the United States has been very torn by the immigration thing. We started having this big wave of illegal immigration in the late 80s. And as the folks came in, at first it really wasn't a big deal. There have always been some people that have come in to work. Now, instead of developing a program to do that, because the our legislators at the national level didn't want to deal with the fallout either way, they decided to just kind of ignore it. Kind of like Social Security. You don't touch the third rail because if you do that, somebody's going to get mad at you. We've known Social Security's been in deep trouble since the late 60s. And now we are, you know, the, coming up to the baby boomer retirement and we still don't have an answer. The same thing is true with immigration. They wouldn't touch immigration, although they would posture. Now, why wouldn't they touch immigration? Well, because one side of the Republican Party is saying, close the border, make America for Americans, and especially in the Sun Belt, because they had more state expenses, there was a lot of pressure to close the borders, close the borders. The other side of the Republican Party said, are you nuts? This is our only chance to compete with China. Our businesses have to have this cheap labor or we're in trouble. So the Republicans were split. 
the Democrats, one side of the Democrats, said, let everybody in, be, be welcoming, be gracious, be compassionate. The labor side of the Democrats said, are you nuts? They're taking American jobs. We can't be having these people coming in and taking away our jobs and busting the unions. So both sides were locked up. Now, just before every election starting in the 80s, there was always some posturing. Either the House or the Senate would pass some kind of bill for or against something dealing with immigration, coming up with immigration overhaul. And there would be all kinds of PR and it would be all over the news that the House passed. Well, if you're a normal American getting little bits and pieces of the news or maybe an immigrant, you heard the House passed it and the Democrats did this, the Republicans did that. Well, that scored points. Bottom line is nothing ever passed. Nothing ever went through both houses. It was signed into law. They just booted it back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. All the way through from the late 80s, I used to sit down every time there was an election cycle with the Latino pastor I work with, and we'd talk about it. I'd say, well, here's what's going on this time, and uh, but here's the posturing, and nothing is going to happen. But Oh, here, something. When Bush came in, he said he was going to do something about it. It looked like we were going to have some kind of way of figuring out some way to do this. But then we had wars, and there was too much political pressure. Now, where does the political pressure come from? That comes from the states. States pay for education. States pay for medical care until recently. But the border states, New Mexico, Arizona, and then California and so forth, Nevada, had groups of people who were very anti-immigration because they were paying for schools. They were paying for medical care for non-residents who were coming in. And, and that was a problem for them because it was very, very expensive. Part of the reason for Obamacare was because it put the, the poor American citizens onto the national payment for, uh, for health care so that the, the local regional medical centers, the county hospitals and so forth, could afford to pay for the, the non-citizens and so that they could continue to be a source of cheap labor. Nobody ever talks about that, but that's a, a piece that drives that. So there are all kinds of things when we talk about the immigration issue that we don't talk about publicly. We don't talk about all these health care things, Social Security, and so on. We need to lay out a map, and I'm trying to do that here, is to lay out an understanding of the global picture, of the, the national picture, of the economic forces. And now we, next time as we go to the next section, we're going to talk about culture. We're going to talk about and, and the global situation that makes this migration and the intersection of cultures collide in a world that's quickly changing that way, and people can only accept change so fast. Cultures can only accept change so fast. So we're going to talk about that next time. And you've been listening to Mission Shift Podcast with Pastor Rollin Wells. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us today for this podcast. If you liked what you heard, please join us again next time. You can go to our website at missionshift.org for more information. While you're online, you can sign up for the RSS feed that will deliver a link to your email inbox so you'll never miss an episode. That address again is missionshift.org.